0: Welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now, here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson.
1: Welcome back to Diverse Tech Founders Media. We're in D.C. on iStreet at D.C. Startup Week with Blair Matthews, co-founder of Zuri Fertility. And we're going to get into just all of what they do uh, along the way. But first, we want to get to know Blair Uh, In true fashion. So as additional background, Blair is yet another bison a Howard grad to come on to the podcast in the studio. So he's going to talk maybe a little bit more about how Howard shaped him. But now let's get into Blair, not today, but little Blair from back in the day and talk to us about childhood Blair. And if younger childhood, Blair would be friends with you today and just kind of like orient us around how you were shaped as a youngster.
0: Spent a lot of time in the church. Spent a lot of time in the church, I could say. We had Tuesday night Bible study, Friday night marches in the community. Saturday, I would work at the church and Sunday, altar serve, be a church, right? And then when I got older, as I got older, I would have like youth group on Fridays at the church. So I spent a lot of time in my church community, getting to know a lot of members of my church community. It had a very positive impact on me. The other time that I wasn't at church or school, I spent a lot of time with my brother who uh, had a visual impairment disability that ultimately uh, took his life later on as we grew older, but it expanded it into other disabilities. So I spent a lot of time with him and doing sports. So soccer, swimming, water polo. <laughs> Uh, skateboarding, learning music, a lot of things that not typical of your kid on the South side of Chicago, you would think had have an interest in, right? But I had an interest in those things. And speaking of that, I'm glad you brought
1: that up because water polo I've heard is probably the toughest sport you can do because of what all is involved. How'd you get into that? And do you still draw from
0: those lessons? Yeah, most definitely. I would say even before water polo swimming, And swim practices that's what led me to water polo but swimming specifically being in that lane at practice no one can reach you i didn't realize it until i was an adult and i wasn't doing swimming every single day but my entire life up until maybe like law school i was like swimming pretty much every day and it serves as almost therapy because no one can get to you at that time and you have your thoughts and you have that peace whether it's an hour, two hours, that time that you get to yourself, you don't always get when you have such a packed and busy schedule and then now balance and fatherhood and everything else that you have going on. But I think that time spent swimming and getting to understand myself and how I needed that space to think and, uh, you know, mentally train, right, helped me then physically trained for water polo, which was new to me, and it was so exciting because it was almost like a combination of two of my favorite sports, swimming and soccer. And when I got into water polo, I immediately fell in love with it. Our team was small, so I could say, I was like, <laughs> you know, immediately a starter, but like, it was good. You know, it was good to like have a big role on a team. And I really enjoyed that. I ended up being the captain my senior year at Mount Carmel High School in Chicago. And it, that impact us stay with me. Um, So much so that it was like a game in the state playoffs like we weren't like a super great team, but that year we had done pretty well Um, My co-captain and I like We led the team pretty pretty deep run had a decent shot at winning a game or two in the playoffs And I was really sad and upset I remember when I came home to my grandmother and I told her we had lost and that was it like my water polo career was basically over right and she looked at me, and she was like, well, you know, somebody had to lose. I remember just thinking, like, wow. But she's really right. Yeah. Like, somebody had to lose at that point. And I think, you know, as I reflect on life, like, there's been a lot of wins, a lot of high highs, and a lot of low lows. But at some point, you have to, like, understand that loss, right? Go through it. and Then you're going to have a chance where you have to win, and when it's your turn to win, too. But you can't go through life just, soup, like, super down on that, right? And just stay in that space. And I think that's what she was trying to get me to do. It's like, no, don't stay there. Like, keep living. Like, somebody had to lose today. But talk about the toughness of water polo, I got so many stories, man. There was a kid that gave me a black eye one year, in <laughs> water polo, because you're treading water. People are, like, close to you. They're, you know, you're treading water, you're trying to get the ball. I played basically with is the point guard position in basketball, but for water polo, you're trying to get it to your big man down low to get the easy bucket, right? Which is like, just like swinging the ball right around, get an easy goal. Sometimes I'll shoot it from outside, you know, kind of like Steph Curry range type thing, but in water polo, but people are kicking you under the water. They're punching you under the water and you you don't see any of that going on, but it's a lot going on in the water, underwater polo. And like, you know, they're grabbing your suit, scratching you. I mean, the refs check your fingernails before the game to make sure that you can't scratch People still come out the pool with scratches. It's a tough sport. I'm glad you went deeper into that, like I said, because it is
1: stated to be one of the harder sports. And it sounds like you derive some lessons, not just from the sport, but from talking about it with your grandmother. So back in those early days, you were in the church, you were in the water, you were playing sports, you were on the pitch. When did you find time to get acclimated to technology and start touching and feeling around technology? we'll get into the tech company you're building right now but what were some of your earliest experiences with tech and
0: innovation yeah that's actually really good Um, I would say at my grandfather's auto shop I didn't have a computer at home I didn't personally have one in the house and I don't think we got a computer until I was in high school at my grandmother's house so at the auto mechanic shop my grandparents my mom's dad and mom they own a auto repair shop called busy beaver auto repair it was one of the black-owned auto mechanic shops on the South Side of Chicago. And they had a, when they got a computer in there, I was going to that shop basically every day after school. Um, at one point, they would pick me up from school. My mom was still at work and things like that. And my brother and I, we would go in there. We were supposed to sit in there and do our homework in the office. I would see, I didn't realize what I was observing, but I was observing entrepreneurship. I was observing ownership within my own family. It didn't carry on in that way, and we could talk about that later. But like, I was observing it at an early age without realizing it, right? My grandmother was keeping the books. She didn't have more than a high school education, but she was running the business, keeping the books. And my grandfather was, you know, the mechanic and the brains behind all of that. So they ran a family business very well together for years. And even my uncle worked for them too. Uh, but it was in the shop that they got a computer, and I was able to like start. Messing around on the computer, learning about different things. What did you do on the computer? What did I do on the computer, you know? Besides play solitaire or something when I was done with my homework, I, I, you know, at that age, I was learning how to like really just navigate what is the internet, like a whole AOL dial-up system and everything like that. I mean, at that time, I knew other kids were like using AIM to talk to each other. I didn't really get into that because I never had more than like 30 minutes at a time where I was like sitting at the computer. Uh, I might get a chance to play Oregon Trail. So like I wasn't like diving into like, oh, how is this made? Or like I was super intrigued, but like not intrigued to the level I think where like a lot of other technical founders come from. Right. When they first get technology in front of them. Um, But I was appreciative of the technology, I guess. You know, Oregon
1: Trail was an era. <laughs> yeah. That was the earliest for me was, you know, sitting down at the computer. Because my my mother got our first computer from my great aunt. She was mm-hmm. like, yeah, you need to have this thing. It was a Macintosh. Mm-hmm. And like you say, you play like Hangman, which is a terrible game. In retrospect now, Solitaire. But Oregon Trail was really where you start to see that there's a whole universe that the computer can create.
0: Yeah, and it's actually really good, though, as a first introduction and game because a lot of your decision making has an impact on how your game progresses right or how you progress throughout the game or, or your the members of your community going with you throughout the trail right like who makes it in the end with you it's almost like a representation of life even entrepreneurship you might start out with like seven people in a group and only like three or two of you might make it to the end that it's, is true and you, know, and you have to ration
1: your medical equipment and all that, of that Speaking of that, now let's talk about what you're building now Yeah. Uh, at Zuri Fertility. What is Zuri Fertility? Where did that idea come from? You have a personal story. It's not as though you just said, hey, let me find a problem and solve <laughs> it. This problem came to you, and now the
0: solution is coming from you as well. So talk about that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Zuri Fertility, first and foremost, we're a digital virtual fertility care platform where we help couples from, oh my God, I can't get pregnant, to all the way to their pregnancy, right? So that's currently what we're building is an app to help them through the education, telehealth, at home testing, and care navigation, and care coordination, right? So we do all of that for our patients. We even do a bit of that for our doctors to help connect them to the patients Uh, it's, It's so much more, and we can dive deeper into what each of those pillars are, but just know that we have educational content on our app so that couples can learn about what's going on in their fertility journey, questions that they might have for a doctor that don't normally get answered. But we also have telehealth, so we can get you a telehealth appointment so that you can get a test kit ordered to you. You can do the test kit from home. You can do everything from home except for the imaging study for women, which we also help. Coordinate that for you, so that you know we're saving you time and money doing that. But everything is to make it easier process for those who are going through the fertility journey instead of it being disjointed. Question about that? No, no, I mean, is
1: is it okay? You're in your 20s, you're in your 30s. Why in the heck would you be thinking about fertility or having fertility issues? You may be thinking, oh, you know, I'll wait till I'm 36 (laughs) to, you know, freeze my eggs or freeze whatever I need to create this baby. So talk to us about, like, why it's such a big deal. Like, is fertility
0: something we should even care about as 20s and 30s and 40s something? Yeah, most definitely. I think everybody should and I think everybody will within, like, the next five to six years uh, start – to understand, like, hey, this is something I need to take care of in my early 20s. Uh, our generation is going to be impacted by it a lot. There's a there's an access issue, access to care issue right now within fertility. There's only but so many fertility specialists out there, right? IVF is not a one-all save-all. Um, so even if you're waiting to have kids and you're just like, oh, I'll just use IVF. No, it, it's not a magic bullet. It doesn't mean it's going to help. What's the success rate? right now the average couples that what they need of ivf cycles is uh three cycles to get pregnant and that on average they can cost between twenty thousand dollars um per cycle right so you think about that it's like sixty thousand dollars and a maybe of one successful pregnancy uh, i met a couple that did ivf seven times that's like 140k you know and they're they said we're done after this like we're not trying again you know because it was so hard it can take a lot it can take a lot of time it can take a lot of money you don't have a lot of care access you know you don't get to spend a lot of time with the doctor there's a lot of issues of frustration of being you know siloed off between the couples a lot of anxiety between them and not you know being able to communicate these issues with each other or with someone else talk about that more a lot of frustration is there
1: like blame back and forth how do you know if i'm the problem if you're the problem sure. is that even how you should frame
0: the conversation why is it so tough to have that conversation definitely don't frame it as a as the blame but this is one of the reasons why Um, I'm on this journey is my wife and I we struggle with this issue ourselves in our 20s and we were healthy believed to be healthy right and we just couldn't figure out what what was going on but infertility can affect men one-third of the time one-third of the time it could be women one-third of the time it could be an unknown issue between the two that is you know difficult to understand what's going on there right and so uh, the science behind that obviously my co-founder being a doctor has you know spoke tremendously about, we've done so many videos on that on our uh, Instagram, at Zuri Fertility, where you can find out more information about that. But just from my personal experience of going through that, I was going down the rabbit hole of the internet and the treasure trove of misinformation that was out there of like, you should be trying this. It's probably this issue and it's none of that. You couldn't get a clear medical answer when we were trying. And that's why it is so personal to me. My wife and I, it wasn't until that she reached out to her medical network, to get the answers that we needed that we were finally able after a few more months of struggling able to get pregnant so if i don't have a doctor you know
1: as a wife or a husband what are my options what are my what are my uh go-to resources and how is the fertility cutting that time down for
0: me yeah traditionally you know you might spend months before you get in front of the fertility clinic doctor right like before you get an appointment there And even once you get the appointment, they might tell you, you know what, we actually need you to go back and try for 12 more months um, before you can come back here and we can do the test on you to see what the issue is. And that's just a whole lot of time being wasted. We know a lot of that has to do with like just how the care navigation is set up with insurance and things like that right now. And also like the access issue, they just don't have the room for those patients as much as like the patients that they're serving doing like IUI and IVF right now. Right. So there's a lot that can be done with other doctors that we just haven't tapped into yet. And there's a lot that patients can be doing lifestyle changes and things ahead of time that we believe at Zuri we can help take care of. Right. So we get you tested. We get you an actual medical diagnosis. Right. So you're getting that within that 12-month span. You're getting that before that 12-month span that you would normally wait. So now you know what's wrong, what's the issue, right? We give you our plan of your journey, right, of what you should be doing. So that may include some educational content, some videos or articles that you're reading. Might include like four specific tailored appointments to you a month. So maybe, you're, maybe a diagnosis in there is a PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome. I hope I'm not butchering that, but like, okay, so what is it? And I'm not a doctor. I've been in the fertility industry now. So long, I've gotten the crash course on almost everything and learned a lot with my co-founder as well. But PCOS is a hormonal disorder among women of like basically reproductive age. Okay. It has a history of affecting black women a lot in our community. And I'm not too sure why. Right. And that's something that we definitely want to gather data on and uh, learn about to be able to help Help with more, and that's something we've talked about with some some of the doctors that we've interviewed, and things like that, and other people that we have seen as potential partnerships for Zuri. And some of these causes for women might include like some insulin resistance, so that happens to over seventy percent of the women who deal with PCOS, right? A lot of inflammation that they might be dealing with. So, in you know, like we were talking about those uh, polycystic ovaries. It could be hereditary, unfortunately. So, like, you have some family history, or if you knew if your grandmother or mother suffered from this, maybe you know there's a chance that you could, and might be something that you want to look out for, you know, check into, or hormonal imbalance. So, if you know that you have sometimes elevated levels of hormonal imbalance, that can be a factor as well. And the major complication is obviously infertility of where it affects. I mean, there's some other other things like gestational diabetes and you know throughout your pregnancy or miscarriage. But you know, you can't even get to those points once you can't get past infertility. So and there's more things that I think a doctor would be able to talk to anyone. More specifically about, especially the doctors on Zuri Fertility. So talk to us about that because now I'm overwhelmed. Now I'm just like, yo, yeah. I thought I was ready,
1: but am I really ready to to start this journey of building a family and, and and working to have a kid? How does Zuri help with the process? Like what do you what do you
0: actually do and how much does it cost? Yeah. So we help we basically handhold couples who figure out, like, oh my God, we can't get pregnant and we have no idea what's going on where to start, who to talk to, or what we should be doing. And we take care of all of those for them. That was my wife and I. We didn't know where to start. So you start with Zuri, right? Download the app. It's free to download. There's a lot of free content first. And we help you even, you know, just get knowledgeable about what infertility is. A lot of free videos and articles that we have right away in the app. You can start cycle tracking for free. And we have our proprietary algorithm that if you know if your cycles are irregular it might prompt you for a zuri fertility workup or if you're having sex on the right days but not getting pregnant it will prompt you to take a zuri fertility workup and that workup is you know the fertility testing that we do so you'll get prompted for that you schedule a meeting with the provider the provider does a meeting with you and your spouse then you get the test kits mailed to you they get mailed to your home you do the test kits from home The woman will obviously go to you know her chosen facility if she chooses some chosen facility for her imaging study or we can help provide her one in her area and once we have all of that information back our doctors can then give a medical diagnosis and then begin a treatment plan and that may be you know this is where i was going with pcos right so maybe you're meeting with a reproductive endocrinologist specialist um once a month maybe you're meeting with the mental health uh, professional, once a month for you and your partner going through this journey. Maybe you're meeting with a nutritionist or a dietitian, you know, to help with this, or obgyn or a male urologist, right? So whatever that medical diagnosis is, um, not only for you but also your partner, we help you know prepare that journey for you throughout throughout the fertility journey. So we handhold you throughout the entire process. You don't have to keep going from like, oh, we meet with this physician here on Thursday at some random time. And you got to go there for that appointment. And you're both trying to coordinate your schedules along with them, you know, the doctor's schedule. But then you got another appointment the next week at some different office. Maybe it's your mental health therapist. No, no, no. Everybody comes to you for Zuri, right? Your whole team is there. So our doctors are there virtually for you, for everything. We can prescribe medication. We can prepare a treatment plan. We're trying to do everything to save you time and money before, you know, you had to try IVF or go down that road of something more serious. Right. So all roads lead to Zuri. And I know you're
1: pre-launch at the moment, although that is going to change here in the next month or so. Talk to us about what evidence of traction that you saw and are seeing that makes you want to keep going with this? Like why keep trying to build this better app to solve this very difficult problem? Like what traction are you seeing that lets you know this is something that's venture backable?
0: Yeah, that's great. I mean, we have a wait list of over a thousand strong now, and that has come from like word of mouth and you know, very recently, social media, very, very recently, like within the summer, like just started a little bit of paid marketing. Right. And I mean, because we're bootstrapped, we didn't have like money for like, you know, like a huge marketing budget or anything. So a lot of word of mouth, which we're very grateful for our community of like supporters and friends and like people who have gotten the word out, but other people who have just found us and said, wow, oh my gosh, I needed you guys. Like I need you guys. I know someone who needs you guys right now. Like, when can I sign up? When can I get this test started? So we have our pilot starting in November, which we're really, really excited about. And we're piloted starting in four states, Illinois, Indiana, Massachusetts, and California. We chose those four states. First of all, we're headquartered in Illinois. So we're starting there. But Indiana, we secured like a partnership with another health system there that's helping us, you know, bring Zuri to their patients. So, but also Indiana has some fertility insurance mandated rules that are interesting, right? Whereas Illinois has mandated fertility insurance, Indiana does not. So uh, getting you know the cost of uh, fertility coverage in Indiana is very tricky for a lot of couples and we wanna figure out how we can help them navigate that in the best way possible. Uh, California has a lot of things going on with fertility. It almost seems like the fertility hub, in my opinion, just from being out there and meeting so many people involved in it. Uh, and Massachusetts also has a lot of great things going on, as well as where my co-founder is from. So it's it's been helpful, you know, having those uh, networks and being able to be available in those states. And we're available in all 50 states. We plan after the pilot to you know, be able to launch in all 50 states right away. Um, we're licensing credential thanks to our partnership with Open Loop Health uh, in all 50 states. So yeah, we're excited about it. So talk to us about how you thought about that go-to-market
1: strategy, because in the early days, there were different ways you were thinking about cracking that nut. But how did you even think about the go-to-market strategy, especially with something like fertility and healthcare, where presumably all of the markets are open to you, but maybe some users emerged or some customer
0: segment became your target,
1: maybe one that you weren't actually expecting?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I think it's a couple of different answers too, right? We learned as we went along, right? But also the environment that we were in when we started Zuri. Um, both being in grad school, right, Um, and around our peers. There were so many of my fellow classmates at the law school who said, what you're doing, I know I'm going to need one day, right? Because so many of my classmates knew they were going to go to a big law firm. They're going to put their head down for the next five years and just focus on whatever it is they needed to focus on to, you know, do well at the firm and, you know, just grind it out. But that also takes away time from those years of, your reproductive years, right? So uh, it's interesting, like a lot of men didn't know that they should freeze their sperm, you know, maybe within their 20s, right? When they're really healthy before... A lot more goes on in life or before you start doing a lot of other lifestyle changes. Maybe you're drinking more as you get older or maybe you're you know smoking and that those things have impacts or wherever you're living, your environmental impacts. Uh, so what are some tips, by the
1: way? I know you're not a doctor, but what are some things that we should be? Oh, let me ask you this. What are some things that you have learned and picked up even after going through the process by launching
0: and starting zero? Yeah. One of the biggest ones, which Juliana, my co-founder, she did a. Maybe like a four to six part series on uh, TikTok and Instagram on our page. I remember that on marijuana, it's like it's one of the biggest effects on your fertility. And while me personally, I'm a proponent for like natural remedies and you know things that can help people naturally before you turn to a lot of you know putting a lot of things in your body. You got to be careful of, but. Uh, it has a huge impact like it's just the science of it and it just takes your fertility right it it, is it's a a big impact right especially for men and especially when smoking it too so not to say that you know it's the end-all be-all but I think everyone just you know should get their fertility tested and just Understand where they stand right now, right? Can you do that through Zuri? What do you mean? Get yeah, your fertility. Get testing. your fertility. Test. What does yes. that mean? What do you need? Do a through? workout. Yeah, you can do that through Zuri, and that way, you know, I think the earlier you do it, the better. Honestly, I would love when people get to a point where they're like, you know, we might have just getting just gotten married or we just got engaged, and we just want to test our fertility to see, you know where we are if we want to have children one day right maybe that's a plan but maybe we don't want to have children until we're like in our 30s or something maybe i just graduated law school my spouse just graduated from grad school and we're only like 25 26 hey we want to take a little bit of time for ourselves okay that's fine now let's get tested see where you guys are maybe you decide after your fertility testing like hey this might be a good time for us to like you know freeze some embryos together right like maybe that's a decision that you make with your spouse so that You can have that opportunity to have children later down the line, whether it's, you know, yourself carrying the baby or whether it's, you know, getting a surrogate. There's at least more options for you the younger you are. Once you turn 35, like that fertility success rate drops drastically. For For men and women? For women especially. Okay. Um, Yes, for both, but specifically for women. Okay, got it. It's it's like running off a cliff drop. All right, all right. right. We get it. (laughs) It's, It's a big drop off. So you're
1: married. I am, and uh, you've referenced, you know, couples going through this journey together. And I, like you, grew up in the church and, and am a proponent of, you know, the order, you know, getting married, having babies, and all that. Although that's not necessarily the current status for many people who are uh, going through this fertility journey. So my question, and a contemporary or current event reference ebony k williams has been talking about this you know she hit 40 she froze her eggs i think Mm -hmm. when she was 34 and now she's putting it to use and she's on that journey she talks about it it wasn't her first choice it can zuri work for somebody who isn't in a marriage or a long-term relationship are those are those potential users
0: for zuri too absolutely um you know We see potential users not only in that community, but, you know, our community of LGBTQIA+, right? Talk about that more. Um, Yeah, (laughs) you know, I am not personally a member of that community, but the way I can explain it is that we want to be able to, you know, our, our goal is to provide a beautiful fertility journey for anyone who wants to be a parent, and that literally means anyone, and so we want to... able to help everyone on this journey and that takes a a bit of work it takes more work than you know a traditional heterosexual um family or a couple going through this journey right because there's a lot of answers already there there's a lot more steps going through it you know when you have same-sex partners or you know you have different things going on One of the best examples is uh, a close friend of mine, also a doctor, my chiropractor, won't say his name, but he and his partner, you know, talked about having kids. And I thought it was interesting how he wanted to go about it. You know, his sister was going to donate an egg for his partner's sperm. But, you know, she was like, I'm not carrying a baby. That would just be too weird for me. (laughs) You know, it's just like, I, I found that interesting, but it also like gave me ideas of like, okay, like, so how do we step in and help that couple then, you know, at that Point in their journey right like how do you help them so it gives us more ideas more more things to work on there's more to come in the future like we have a lot more phases that we're rolling out um, with Zuri in the coming years but you know we have to start somewhere and you know be able to get some venture backable funds to make sure that we can keep improving upon our product so that's excellent man and I want to switch gears
1: a little bit and ask you how is this affecting you back at home Right. Yeah. The, this idea sort of generated out of your home. But in what positive ways has your experience as a founder given up the cushy, big law job, you know, graduated from law school and launching a business and a startup? In what positive ways has this journey impacted your personal life or your family life? You have two young children as well. Just talk about how it
0: has helped at, back at home. Yeah, two young boys right now. Um, thankfully, um, you know, we were able to get pregnant successfully and twice. We, twice. And we had our oldest um, right before I started law school. <laughs> um, so Benji knows everybody in the law school and everybody knows Benji. And then we had Bo right at the end of law school. So, like, right maybe like four months before graduation, Bo came. So, you know, it's, it's been a huge impact in multiple, multiple ways. And uh, the first I would say is, uh, you know, my fear with going to big law, especially. Um, starting law school later in life, right? Being an older lawyer and wanting to seem just confident and competent in my own practice and what I'm doing, and feeling like I missed out on some of those years because I didn't go to law school sooner. Uh, I would say I've had a crash course in just knowing how to run a business, how to be a lawyer. Uh, you know, our attorney for Zuri, you, you yourself have been kind of like my overseeing attorney when I'm doing work right for Azuri on our, you know, any legal work, any like, you know, issues that I find in some of the contracts. I'm doing the work that I was supposed to be doing. And I didn't realize that when starting it, you know, yes, after graduation you see your friends take taking the cushy jobs and it can have a little bit of an impact, but then my friends remind me, you know, like, oh, I wish I was doing what you were doing sometimes. It's, it's not meant for everyone, though. Uh, I'm blessed to have a spouse who's really supporting me. She would support me if I was a garbage man. So I'm blessed to have that and not have that added pressure. I think, I, as she puts it, I put a lot of pressure on myself, and she also knew I couldn't work for anybody else. So it wasn't a surprise to her when I approached her and said, hey, babe, I think you know we're going to take this past the class project level and actually turn this into a company I think we're going to keep going with this, right? And it's been a testament to my boys to show them like, hey, you can build something yourself, right? Like you don't have to go and work for somebody else. You can build something to help people and to make money and to, you know, to bring something to this world and leave it a better place than when you got here, right? And do something that's meaningful and hopefully do more than just this project, right? Like, and go on and continue to, you know, put back into the community what the community has given me. I mean, I want my boys to be able to do whatever they want to do, you know, as long as they're not hurting anyone. Like, you know, so whether it's the joy of like, you know, playing professional sports or, you know, being an artist or, you know, going to law school, even though I'm probably going to ask them not to, you know, or becoming a doctor or whatever. But like just having that freedom for them to do it is yeah. worth it for me. Yeah. Uh that's big. yeah.
1: so so talk about that choice that you made. I know you're kind of uh, <laughs> touching around it, but like it's a big deal. Uh, and we talk to a lot of people who are may come to you and say, hey, I'm thinking about starting a business, but they don't. You decided to do that even before you graduated and you gave up. The big job, you had it in hand, but decided not to do it. Talk about the difference in in being a full-blown entrepreneur and not just, you know, thinking about it and making that dive. And in my experience, You know, people are attracted to entrepreneurs, even in the dating scene. I know you're married now, but what I have have seen and found is that, you know, people are drawn and attracted to entrepreneurs for one, taking that risk, but also having the freedom to follow their dreams. So just dive deeper into that jump for you. And if you regret it, if you would go back, if you would give this up for that glimpse in the big law life, just talk about that.
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't regret it at all and I don't think I would go back and I can start there. I've ran away from entrepreneurship a lot of my life, I think. When I was younger, and this goes back to childhood Blair and where how I got here. I started a summer camp like when I was maybe like 10 years old no kidding. and I charged all the kids on the block to go to the summer camp. And the headquarters was at the house, at my house in the backyard and I remember I sent home field trip slips that I hand wrote and asked for $2.50 from each kid. And they brought it back to me the next day. With the money. With the money. And my brother and I split the money but I bought everybody like, you know, cheap dollar Lunchables so that I could feed them. The field trip was to the neighborhood park. It was two blocks away. My mom was laughing about it because she's like now I gotta walk with all these kids to the park that my son put together. I had started that business when I was little. I always sold candy in school. I was always finding a way to hustle at least legally hustle you know and uh make my way my mom and i we didn't have a lot of money even though her parents had a business it wasn't you know when my family got divorced i was not so much in a privileged position i was basically on scholarship every time i went to school you know things of that nature and i knew i didn't want my kids to grow up that way but i always found a way to make some type of money It just wasn't always on the scale that it is now. But it was little steps building time and time again, always trying to come up with an idea of how I can make some money, you know, like and be, but I always wanted to have like some type of good social impact at the same time. And like, you know, so it's hard to find that. And so I think building off of that, those experiences when I was younger, then when I was even uh, at Howard, I did a little bit of party promoting with some of my brothers, you know, my frat brothers. And I was, I was shying away from my true self of entrepreneurship because my mom had pushed going into law, poli sci, you know, coming back home, running for office. And I may still or may not have that in me, but it's, you know, it's a different life. And what I noticed in my adult life of thinking about even running for office or anything like that is I don't want to have to ask people for money when I'm doing that one day. Because maybe my views aren't the same as everyone else. And maybe I want to actually be able to, you know, stand on my own two feet and serve the community and what their interests are versus what the people who pay me to be there are. Right. And so that led me to just wanting to make more money in a sense, not just for myself, but for my community. I started a business in law school while I was at Northwestern. That was the first time I really like kind of pushed a little bit harder on that itch. And it was called Bounded Books, um, boundedbooks.com. And it was a book buying service for students to buy books from each other. And it's like curious to me that no one has set anything up like this before because, you know, you have Amazon, you had all these other services, but you had nothing local on the ground at, at my law school. Right. There was nothing within the law realms of where students could easily see that the book that they were buying was that actual book. I don't know how many times I would email back on the listserv of like hundreds of law students trying to buy a book from somebody that they had put on the listserv and then it was gone, or they would meet up with me, I would give them the cash, and then just to find out it was the wrong edition of the law book. And that's a big deal in law school, right? And then especially your first year, you're trying to save money, but I was so scared of like buying used books because I didn't know if I would get distracted by people's notes on the page, I do not know if that would like, you know hinder my learning in some way. It didn't bother me at all, uh, come to realize that. But I wanted that option for other students to see like, oh, here's a clean version of that used book. Here's a like somewhat marked up book. And then here's your gunner level marked up <laughs> notebook <laughs> of, 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 the, of the same textbook, right? So that service allows students to actually see a picture or a video of the book of the person selling it. I um, had it all worked up, had it all Planned out to use a room at the law school. They were going to let me use it for a couple of weeks to like store the books and like help students with the exchange, right? Like, so if somebody was buying a book from you, buying a book from me, and buying a book from someone else, and none of us were in the same section our year, but they had all those professors the nets here in their section, right? So they needed all of those books. I could bound them up for them, right? This is where bound it comes in, right? And then I can have those books ready for them and pay out each individual for them automatically. Now covid happened right in the middle of this so i had all these books on the online service i would i started off like getting the books from the buyers and then delivering them myself or having them meet me to pick them up you know during covid like meet up at a neutral space that became so time consuming and hard to do that uh at a professor give me an idea is like have the buyer send the book directly to the seller have the seller verify the book then release the funds right and i didn't even think about it that way because My whole thing was verifying the book was what you said it was, right? Uh, Because of personal experience as a student and seeing that problem. Once I was able to do that, um, we had a little bit more success, but uh, we got kind of killed off by Facebook Marketplace (laughs) when people started using Facebook Marketplace, which they weren't using before. I mean, it was semi-successful. It was good to fail there, right? And understand a little bit of failure there on a larger scale. I put money into it and I worked really hard on it. Got a lot of like, you know, law school help on it. But I'm, I'm sure the bookstore wouldn't have been happy with us, you know, because you, you you're sell, taking their money, you're taking their money. You know, a student sells their book back to the bookstore. The bookstore is going to give them $20 and turn around and sell that same book for like $80 to $90. Right. So, yeah. yeah so. so I want to switch gears yet again. Right? Yeah. Because
1: you had the personal story and experience to launch this company, mm-hmm. but you have a co-founder. So I want you to talk a little bit about, your co-founder selection experience uh, and also why it was so essential to have a co-founder instead of going at it alone and solo. Uh, I've spoken with a number of people who were either searching for a co-founder or think they're lucky stars that they found one. What's your experience been? Talk about that. Yeah,
0: I've been very blessed. I have a. I was actually talking about this with my line brother on the drive down here from New York on how, I believe, you know, my co-founder and I, we wanted, we have both applied to certain schools. And it was funny that one school in Philly was like another top school choice for us, but both of us didn't get into that school. And so we were both at Northwestern, right, in Chicago. And I'm like, you know what? I bet if I got into that school, she would be in that school too. I just have a... Feeling that that would be the way it worked out, right? We were supposed to meet and do this together. Taking that entrepreneurship course at Northwestern, it's called Medical Innovations, where they take law students, business school students, medical students, and engineering students. They throw them together, put them on random teams. And you are it's kind of like a mini accelerator incubator um, course where they take you through the process of like figuring out the problem, how you're going to solve it, you know, to putting together a deck, to putting together a solution, filing for like trademarks, copyrights. That's why the law students are in there. I met my team. We started off with like six of us on the team, Uh, ended up with seven of us in the second semester of the class. Immediately, the first person to email the team before the class even started was my co-founder. And I was like, who is this person telling me what to do before class even starts, right? I'm like, the, legal, the one coming from law school having like to say, like, who's going to tell me what to do, right? And it was the MD, MBA student, which is my co-founder. Um, thankfully, we were put on the same team, though. Uh, our group actually couldn't come up with an idea of something that we wanted to work on. And I was kind of given a nudge by my professor, Jonathan Gunn, uh, who was like the law school professor for that class. He gave me the nudge. He was like, Blair, I remember you telling me why you were taking this class. Like you were taking it because your father and your brother had an issue in the medical sphere and you had an interest in healthcare law as well as like startup law. But you should think of something. Has there been a problem for you that's been more personal or, you know, that is more widespread? And I had never talked about this before. Right. And I'm like, yeah, my wife and I, like we couldn't get pregnant. And that was like a huge issue for us. And he was like, I would talk about that, right? So in the next group session, I was talking about it, told the story about how my wife and I couldn't get pregnant, how we were going through that journey. It wasn't until like, she reached out to her medical network that we got the answers that we needed. And that let me know like, wow, what about those families that don't have a PA or don't have a doctor in their family to get that access to care, right? And get those early answers. If we didn't get those early answers, we might've missed our window of getting pregnant. And we might be on that IVF journey. So what about them? If they just had this assets earlier, they probably could have saved time and money, too. So with our changes that we made. Right. And um, we were able to get pregnant and be successful. We're basically trying to recreate that process. And that's what give me the idea that there should be something out there. Because I told you the Internet's a trove of misinformation. And when I told this story and the idea to my co-founder and our group, she was the only one that resonated with it because she had worked in Northwestern's fertility clinic. And I think she was still working in it as part of her rotation at that time. And so like the problems that I was talking about from a patient perspective, she would hear as a provider hearing those problems, like, man, I paid for this fertility test, or at least it claimed to be a fertility test. It didn't test all the hormones, or maybe it wasn't really a fertility test and it just labeled themselves as one. And maybe it was just an ovulation kit. It's a lot of, it's like the wild, wild west out there right now. It didn't test all the hormones. It can't be used for a medical diagnosis. You know, it wasn't ordered by a provider. We don't do, we, we make sure to follow the ASRM, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine guidelines for fertility testing, right? So we follow all of those guidelines to give a true medical diagnosis. And that's what makes us different than all of these other services out there. None of them, the online service, not a single one can do a medical diagnosis, but we can. Okay, so mention your co-founder's name and her background. Yes. Tell us a little bit more about what she brings to the table. Yeah. So Juliana Zaccardelli, she's a MD, um, graduated from Northwestern Kellogg School of Business, as well as the Medill School of Medicine. Man, I'm glad I remembered all of that. That's really like not too bad, uh, but wonderful person that um, I got to connect with. Right. And so. We immediately like wanted to start researching that idea after I told that story, right? And so, like, our teammates were researching like two more ideas. But when we all circled back the next week, we basically had the best presentation for the team of like we should move forward on this idea, right? And so, um, and we had said to ourselves like, hey, if they don't want to do this, we'll still keep doing this um, because we think it's a really good idea. We kept going throughout the process. We did like a mini like presentation, like kind of pitch at the end of that semester of class. And it was through like the holiday break, we stayed in touch and then we, you know, the class picked back up in the spring. And for me, I was involved in the San Francisco immersion program. So I was still in the class, but technically couldn't be a student part of the class. Um, But Juliana and I still like spoke, had a separate conversation. And we had said, you know, we want to do this and we were going to put our own money into it to start it, right? But how were we going to approach that idea with our teammates, right? I, You know, and we knew like, what we had built, it was called pre-fertility. At the time, it was going to change a lot, right? Of what we wanted to do, solution-oriented, outside of class. And so we presented it to them. We had a. It was a, one of the first tough conversations, and I'm so happy I took negotiations at Northwestern and like negoc- advanced negotiations where they talk about you know difficult conversations. And if you're a startup founder, that is an excellent book to have and to read. Difficult conversations, and you know. Always remember to be tough on the issues, not on the people, soft on the people, right? When you're uh, negotiating or dealing with these hard conversations. But it's a tough conversation to say, hey, we don't need everybody on this team, right? And only if you're really truly passionate about this should you really think about, consider doing this, giving up your traditional path, whether it's into engineering, medicine, or law, to continue on with what what we were building, right? And it was still an idea of formation. We hadn't built anything yet, but you know there was a few holdouts <laughs> up until we did the venture cat, and we were able to convince them to sign a release uh, because uh, if they weren't going to be a part of it, it, it didn't make sense for venture cat, right? And that thankfully Northwestern has that competition to help founders with these types of issues. So how did y'all do it?
1: venture cat? Talk to us about that. Yeah, history. yeah. So yeah,
0: I would skip over like the drama of that scene of that conversation while you know we tried to make sure we ended on good terms with everyone. Um, only three of us remained. And even that third co-founder, he's now more of a supporter um, and, uh, just because he graduated earlier than Juliana and I, and like he's been in his working role. And to his uh, to his respect, he's very supportive, but he needed work experience, right? Uh, he was just coming out of undergrad. So very talented, which is why we liked him as part of our team. Uh, but yeah, so going forward, we entered into Northwestern's venture capital competition in 2021, right? uh we did not we did not win or become a finalist we were semi-finalists super excited about it it's great provided some great press we got actually free help on our deck and you know we looked very polished uh it's just a lot of things right and it was a good experience but losing there it was it was tough it was tough everything was virtual we felt like we had something really good and we just couldn't believe that we didn't even make the finals right that year and it was just It was so disheartening, right? Uh, And I remember my co-founder being super down. And I was like, no, it's okay. We're going to be better for this. And in my mind, I'm also thinking like, oh, man, what are we going to (laughs) do, right? Like, what's the next move, right? What are we going to do? But we spent the summer, you know, picking ourselves back up. Uh, You had another shot at it. We had another shot. We had another year in school. We got some advice from some other investors, you know, that we had pitched to on, Hey, you know, you guys should like really flush out this idea and your solution throughout this next year, which we spent the whole next year doing. I mean, doing full time law school, falling behind on work, and then having some of my professors say, I know you're behind on this, but go take care of that because that's more important. <laughs> like it literally blew my mind. It was some professors who really got it and then there were some who didn't get it. Like there was a class on entrepreneurship that I did not do well in, which is funny because I'm probably the one entrepreneur out of the out of the law school right now, you know, out of my class. So it was, um, you know, some something that was like pretty funny to me. But so yeah, that after, that journey. So after venture, cat okay, you did better the next year. Okay, yeah, you were able to make year. it to the big stage, crowd favorite, crowd yeah. favorite. The next next year, we were better for it. We actually met a uh, agency that redid our deck. Um, they actually made it way better than our <laughs> previous deck was and i mean it looks flawless it is it, great it became our color scheme for our company like it really helped us out a lot i think going through it the next year uh a lot more buzz and it, it was a lot of comp it was good competition juliana and i were actually asked to come back and speak to the and you venture medical uh, class, right? The next year and talk about like how we decided to continue on and create this company, right? And we were still in school, but now we're like speaking as like alums of the class, right? Our speech or our presentation apparently inspired the team so well that they actually were in that uh, Venture Cat competition <laughs> at the end of the year and they placed ahead of us <laughs> in the medical track, right? <laughs> and so it was really funny that they um, placed ahead of us we, we got second place, and um, so there's five tracks. Um, all five first-place finalists are immediately um, moved on to the finals, right, to pitch in the finals. One second-place team gets the wild-card spot, and it's, like, whoever got the highest score on their rubric. And when I tell you there was some, like, our hearts were pounding, right, it almost felt like a make-it-or-break-it moment. Like, we were the only company, one of the only companies to get picked as a, as a finalist We didn't have revenue yet we were pre-product still even right and we needed this it's kind of chicken and egg situation you need this capital to then go build your product right when we heard our name oh my gosh we could have fainted i mean it's one of the highest highs i i think that we had right just to make it to the finals and then have that opportunity to be a crowd favorite so we're testing everybody like hey guys we made it to the finals and everybody's excited right we're gonna pitch live on on a big stage and like a lot of people watch that Northwestern VentureCast, especially like the Wildcat community of alums. It's like huge. They're they're tuning into that. They make a big deal out of it. I'm getting really excited and jumbling up my words, but it was a very exciting moment for us. And then not only that, we made it to the finals. And all I say, you just got to give us an inch in the door and we're going to put our foot in there. And we placed in the top three, pre-product, pre-revenue, none of that, placing in the top three. So we one, a little bit over thirty-three thousand dollars in non-dilutive capital, which really helped give us that boost of then raising our friends and family round right after that. Which then that money together paved the way for our MVP. We wouldn't be able to have this pilot coming out if we didn't raise that capital and then weren't able to, you know, push that MVP. Then we did some other programs, you know, like we got into TechStars the next year. Talk about that. How how did yeah. TechStars impact your acceleration? man so right so picking up from like winning the venture cap money then you know doing that friends like Fa- ambition friends and family round getting it becoming a semifinalist for black ambition that summer too those programs you know then catapulted us into a different realm of like, you know starting to do meetings with investors and like seeing where we fall on this you know venture backable timetable and we decided ultimately like we thought we were gonna do like a pre seed round that fall. We ultimately decided against that, as you remember, and then started applying to accelerators. The reason being is like going to an accelerator like Y Combinator or Techstars, it's almost like going to Harvard or Yale. It's like getting that stamp of approval, especially for other investors. Like, oh, these startup incubators and accelerators, they see them as venture backable. So now we take a deeper look at this company because you have that stamp of approval. Right. So we started applying to accelerators and I by no means was it like a walking apart. Like we were still getting no's from people, right? Still getting a lot of no's from, from everyone. Uh, but when we got into Stars, I would say our lives changed multiple ways, right? I think that same year, my co-founder, her uh, now fiance, took her on a trip, proposed to her, right? So now she was engaged. When we got into Stars, the first weekend of the retreat of Stars, my wife calls me, says, hey, I'm pregnant. And I was like, you're joking, like, this is a joke, right, it's April Fool's, she's like, no, I'm pregnant, and, like, I'm like, okay, so we're gonna have three, and I remember telling, the first person I told before anyone else was my co-founder, right, and you don't realize this, but your co-founder becomes, like, one of the closest people to you, and, like, you gotta share information that is, like, pertinent, right, because now we're both carrying this burden, hey, we gotta, like, start making some money here so that uh, we can pay ourselves, and then eventually, like, be able to take care of our families, right, so, Put us both under a little bit of pressure i, I would say to like really push ourselves but test stars also puts you around other founders you know pushing themselves push you puts you in a position to seek venture capital but you gotta it is what you make it I, I would say that right like you're around other founders but at the end of the day it's what what are you doing to make it happen right like test stars can bring investors in front of you but are you closing a deal are you you know doing what you're supposed to do on your end so it, it had a huge impact on us we were able to hire a chief medical officer we were able to you know do a lot of different things because of tech stars helping them propel us to a new level right we started getting more press started seeing Zuri a lot mentioning different news and like you know then now northwestern's got a story on us black enterprise so a lot of, a lot more press it, and uh not not so much a lot more pressure yes the pressure is there but a lot more self-discovery between co-founders right working through co-founder conflict working through issues with the company working through problems together to solve them and really being there for each other like it 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 took a lot though to get in it was a lot of low lows and a lot of high highs i'll say that's the life of an entrepreneur
1: and you're building in chicago We're building in Chicago. And we had an episode with Olivia where she makes a strong case that Chicago is the best place to build a health tech or even fertility tech startup. So talk to us about what you're most excited about building in Chicago and having started the company in in Chicago.
0: Yeah, I would say, you know, we were very, um, very fortunate to be in Chicago. With the Northwestern um, connection, right, Northwestern is really huge on their students, like, no matter your degree, like, helping you achieve your dream, right, not just, oh, if you're in law school, you're must only going to be a lawyer, right, like, no, they want you to be a successful person, a well-rounded person, right, They, they care about your whole identity going forward, not just what you came to school for which we're very, both very grateful for because we, you know, didn't go down our traditional path, right? And so through our professors of that, you know, that same course and through a lot of, you know, connections in the Kellogg School of Business as well as the law school, we're getting plugged into different people, like from incubators like 1871 to Matter, Matter Health or M-Hub, right? And Matter Health, has uh, been, you know, super, super great for us. Uh, first of all, we have a place to work out of, uh, you know, right there in the Merchandise Mart. You're pretty much in the heart of downtown Chicago. So you're at Matter. Matter Health has all healthcare entrepreneurs a part of it, which is great because you can swap ideas or like things that have worked not worked for each other right we know another founder who's working on something for back pain who's built an app for that and you know was able to help us as we were talking to the health system we know two co-founders who also like northwestern alums who went through test stars we were able to talk to them about that we we're able to talk to them about like pitching the health systems we we're able to talk to them about pitching partnerships right and get some feedback and other founders who care about you right like to help you be successful and those are kind of like your co-workers you know, uh, yes, you have your own company, but like at least you're surrounded by other people trying to do the same similar things, and that provides a good space to maybe you can share investors or share information about different events, right? Matter curates a lot of investor meets and in events, right? They're plugged into the community in more ways than one. Like we were able to be at like two of the biggest healthcare conferences, VIVE, which was held in Nashville when we got to come hang out with you down there. But we wouldn't have been able to afford that normally if it wasn't for our MATTER connection and being, having a MATTER booth there. Like we're able to have a booth at these conferences, which would be unheard of for us <laughs> normally, right? The same thing with health in Las Vegas. So able to meet with investors, MATTER, TED Stars, Black Ambition, all of these things provided a lot of credibility to us, along with like, you know, of course, being Northwestern graduates and having the Northwestern Venture Cat. But all of these provided a lot more credibility so that when we met with investors, it helps too. Um, At least I've been told it helps sometimes, you know. There's a lot
1: of good information and it's good advice for people who are going along this journey. And what you've alluded to, but maybe haven't dug super deep on was the ground game that you put into. I mean, you sort of mentioned it, but just watching you in different cities from Chicago to Nashville to New York, you never waste any time in stopping to talk with people about what it is and what you're building. So in this basically final substantive question, I wanna ask you, what is the most valuable thing that Zuri does for its users?
0: Our hypothesis is that we'll save couples time and money and get them to pregnancy faster. That's like for couples specifically, the users there, right? For the entire fertility industry, we believe we're modernizing it for today's family, right? Like, So we're modernizing fertility care for today's family. So that's for everyone. But for those users, specifically those patients who are right there in the, you know, starting that fertility journey, saving them time and money. And I'll even add in like access to care, which I just think naturally for us, that's always our thought, right? For access to care. And what I mean by that, that can mean several different meanings, right? Access to care for those Couples who might not be able to meet that financial burden for those couples who are in rural areas, right? Like being able to meet with your provider virtually. I would say like those couples in Indiana and where that health system is, the nearest fertility clinic is three and a half hours away. So like each way, right? Each direction. So you're traveling three and a half hours each direction just to get to a fertility clinic, there's gotta be a better way. And that's what we believe we've solved at Zuri to help couples, right? And I, I will say, you know, for me personally, uh, I've learned a lot about myself as a co-founder. I'm not just like an idea. I'm not just a lawyer. Those roles are important. My most important role is that of a father, right? But in the company, it's like being a strategist. You know, you, you got your hands in several different pots when you're the chief of operations and, the you know, in different roles, right? So like marketing, product. Man, this has been fantastic. Cause like you said at the very beginning,
1: this is a big issue. It's mm-hmm. a huge issue and If I want to stay in touch with you, Blair, how
0: can I do it? Anybody can reach out to us at hello, just the word hello, at ZuriFertility.com. You can also go on our website. You can sign up, join our wait list. If you're interested in a pilot study, I would put, you know, diverse tech founders in the subject line and write us an email at hello at ZuriFertility, especially if you're in California, Illinois, Indiana, or Massachusetts. Send us an email right away. You'll receive 50% discount on Missouri services throughout the program, throughout that pilot study. So that's a really great opportunity. Um, We're actually looking to have, at max, 20 couples in each state, right? Um, So we've been filling it up pretty quickly now. We've had couples that we pulled from our wait list, obviously, who were ready to go, ready to start that journey. But yeah, if anyone out there is listening, please email us right away there. You can also DM us on Instagram or TikTok, at Zuria Fertility. You can find us there. You can find me at, at Blair Matthews on Instagram as well. So I love it. Well thank you so much, Blair. Uh this has been a riveting conversation. Man, um, tell me about it. We didn't even get to like some of the imposter syndrome stuff. I don't even know. I might have mention that, but you, you, the, the thing about <laughs> the thing about you and how you talk about the
1: company is that everything seems to come out um as you describe it because your story is the product. Right. You know, your story is the company, you and Juliana. Uh, so we have a tradition on the podcast. We're going to give you the last
0: word before we peace out of here. So I had a friend ask me, what was the single highest high or like the best thing that I learned or over my last year, right? My birthday was recently. And that was tough for me to answer as well. But I'm, thinking I'm going to give it a shot. And that's, you know, if you want to do this entrepreneurship in this way, right? Venture back, you know. Something that can scale fast and get into this world, it's not easy, right? And it's not for the faint of heart. You can't do it alone. I'm not going to say you can't because I believe everyone can do whatever they set their mind to, but it's better not to go it alone. I found that that, that st- still stands true, right? It's good to have someone that can have your back and also open doors that you can't always open. And, you know, that goes to, you know, the background cultural differences between my founder and I. Uh, there are some doors that I open, you know, and there are other doors that she opens for sure, right? And then there are doors that we hold open for each other, right? Like, hey, this person wants to talk to you. This person wants to talk to me, blah, blah, blah. I, that's one of the best things you can have is value the people and the relationships that you're building with. And don't look for something right away to turn. You can't just talk to an investor and think that's going to turn into an investment right away. That has happened. But I've also had that happened because I had a relationship with that person prior to that investment. And that's great. Like we, you know, been had a normal relationship that we built with that person. That's been a big part of what we try to do. What I try to do is definitely like cultivate relationships, you know, stay in touch with people, whether it's partnerships, relationships, those are, those are the things that we try to do. Uh, I'm just going to leave it as you, know, like, you can do this. And sometimes when you, when it's really dark, the light is almost there, right? Like, you think you're a down and out, and then it's there. It's just takes a little bit more pushing, and you just, one more day. Just keep going for one more day, and you'll surprise yourself. <laughs> like, we surprised ourselves by just where we are today, right? Like, I think my wife heard a conversation between Juliana and I when I came back from a vacation, right, to get some time to actually clear my head that they both sent me on. <laughs> my wife and my co-founder sent me on and said, you need to take a break. And that was, you know eye-opening for her just to see how hard we were working and the things that we were talking about like the api integration with our testing companies and like the partnership deals that we're working on the investors and like just all the things that we were catching up on and running through our to-dos and she's just like oh my goodness like do you guys even realize how far you've come and it's like from idea to creation to like this there's a pilot coming out like the app has been accepted in the app store not only for Apple, but Google and like ready to go. And we're so, so excited. You know, we're just gathering all the participants for the pilot and, you know, we can't wait to have that out for everybody in November. So definitely send us that email if you're interested or DM us on Instagram. Mention Diverse Tech Founders and you'll get the 50% off. What more can be said? What more can be said, man. Thank you, Blair. And until next time, we bid you adieu. Yeah, thank you.
1: Thank you for joining this week's episode of Diverse Tech Founders Podcast. I'm Abraham J. Williamson, and we had yet another great guest to pop in. And if you enjoyed today's podcast recording, please give us a rating. You can do it right now on iTunes or Spotify or whatever, and we'll see you next week.